Today's scripture reading is found in 1 Timothy, the first chapter, verses 1 through 5. I'll be reading from the ESV. Hear the word of the Lord. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, team, Nick, Roger. Appreciate all of y'all's hard work. Thank you so much for leading us this morning in worship through song and for Nick and Roger centering us in God's word. I uh, am feeling particularly old this morning. Um, Joni and I now have a child who is no longer a teenager. Uh, Lainey turns 20 today. Um, and so Joni and Lainey went up for the weekend to uh, celebrate, or Joni and Hadley, excuse me, went up for the weekend to celebrate with Lainey, and they're on their way back today. So um, along with them uh, who, who are traveling, I uh, want to pray for all in our congregation who are traveling today or who are not able to, to travel to be here today. Uh, so let's go to the Lord uh, one more time and ask for his uh, hand in the lives of those who aren't able to be here with us today. Father, we give you thanks. This has already been mentioned this morning. What a great privilege it is to come here together and to cast off the cares of this world and to sit here in this incubator of hope, this warm place of remembrance. Thank you for who you are and what you have done. Thank you for the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. And thank you that you call us into relationship. And that no matter what is happening around us, we have the steadfast hope of Christ as our rock, as Christ as our savior, Christ as our strength. Father, we do pray for those who are not able to be with us today, who are not able to experience what we are enjoying here in this room. We pray, Father, for those who are able to watch online or listen, that they would sense your love and care and compassion. They would be moved this morning by this worship. 
We pray for their healing for those who are sick. And we ask, Father, that you would remind us all, whether well or sick, present here this morning or absent, remind us all of your love for us in Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray with the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, for better or worse, we are constantly being shaped. When I say that, perhaps you think about standing in front of the mirror and admiring your work from the gym or from walking the hills. If you're anything like me, you might find yourself assessing the results, though, of a cruel 2020. If you're in that latter category like me, we're not alone. From last March of 2020 to July of 2020, it's reported that 76 of Americans gained up to 16 pounds during the lockdown. So due to a, a decrease of exercise and unrestricted diets, 2020 played a big role in shaping some of our waistlines. So there, there is this physical component to shaping and being shaped, but because we are human, we're not only physical. We want to consider how else we are shaped and what it is that does the shaping. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. In addition to our physicality, there is also the soul. And just as we are concerned about the body and it being shaped, we must be concerned about our soul and how it is shaped. So have you ever taken time to consider the worth of your soul? One thing, one thing that should get our attention is just how hard the world works to get access to our souls and how desperately the world seeks to shape it. And if you're finding it hard to believe me, I invite you to tune in tonight to this little television program called the Super Bowl, where millions upon millions of dollars will be spent in an attempt to gain access to your soul. The human soul is a hot commodity, and the world is willing to go to great lengths to possess it. But there's another investor who's gone to even greater lengths to redeem our soul and to restore us to who God intended us to be. His name is Jesus, and his gospel tells us how our souls should be shaped. Hebrews 3.17, speaking of churches, elders, and their care for churches' members, says, For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. We take very seriously the thought that our souls and what proceeds from them are being shaped every day. And equally, we take very seriously the biblical mandate that above everything else, it is the gospel that should be shaping us. This topic of being shaped by the gospel is so important that we are going to devote the entire month of February to looking at it. For many of us, the gospel is something that we've heard and believed. But it's often the case that we assume we've graduated from the gospel. We believe that the gospel is entry-level material, and we are able to leave that in order to go on 
to bigger and better truths. However, as a disciple of Jesus, we never outgrow the gospel. For the entirety of our days as followers of Jesus, the truth of the gospel shapes us. When thinking about the gospel and how it shapes us, I thought of two illustrations. Some might say that the relationship between the gospel and a disciple of Jesus is like an astronaut in her rocket on a launch pad. They might say the gospel is like the the launch pad, and the goal is for the disciple to launch up off of the pad to be free to explore blue skies and far-off destinations. For the other illustration, think about an old-fashioned diver's rig, the kind that was around long before the days of scuba tanks. In this scenario, I would say the relationship between the gospel and a disciple of Jesus is like a deep-sea diver connected to the boat by his oxygen line. Here the gospel is like the boat, and the goal is for the disciple of Jesus to explore the depths of God's undersea creation. So I know that we're conditioned to think that up is good and down is bad, but for the sake of this illustration, don't be thrown off here. I promise I'm not trying to trick you. In which of these two examples does the connection between the disciple and the gospel remain intact? It's the example of the diver where the oxygen line, the the literal lifeline, keeps the disciple tethered to his life source. I think this is how we are to think about the gospel. If you're new to Trinity, we want you to know that discipleship is important to us. The reason it's important to us is because it was important to Jesus. Matthew's gospel ends with Jesus issuing a charge to his disciples. Very well known, his parting words to them were, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. Jesus' closest followers would go on to change the world by making disciples and teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. It didn't end with those closest to Jesus because by nature, disciples make disciples. So if you're a Christian, you're a disciple of Jesus because someone discipled you who had been discipled by someone else, who had been discipled by someone else. You are a disciple of Jesus in part because of decades and centuries of other disciples' obedience to Jesus. So in an effort to obey Jesus' command and to highlight the importance of disciple-making, for the last couple of years as a church, we have devoted time at the beginning of the year to emphasizing the necessity of making disciples. So we want to help you as a disciple to make disciples. What does that look like? Very simply, we want to help you as a disciple help others to follow Jesus. You heard that from Pastor Jeff last week. That is what a disciple maker is. It is someone who helps someone else to follow Jesus. As this is our third year and third church-wide discipleship emphasis, we're calling this Discipleship 301. You may hear it referred to as D301. D301 will be a four-week sermon series devoted to looking at the New Testament book of 1 Timothy. Uh, 
We're going to be identifying ways in which Paul directed Timothy to make disciples in Ephesus. So if you've already participated in D101 and D201 over the last couple of years, I want to encourage you to pull them up again, take a look at them, refresh uh, your mind by going through them again, share them with a neighbor, share them with a friend. But if you haven't already looked at them, they are resources that will help you in thinking about how to make disciples, how to help others to follow Jesus. You'll find a link on the landing page of our website, and I want to encourage you to go there. All of the material is, is there on the front page of our website, and I want to encourage you to look through that. Additionally, for this series, we're going to be emailing a study companion to you the Monday morning after each sermon. So be on the lookout for that tomorrow. You're going to be getting an email with a study guide to help you think more about this sermon today, and you're going to get one for the next three weeks as well. If you don't receive it, it's because we don't have your email address. So just reach out to me here at the church, and we'll make sure that you get it. Two years ago in D101, we asked and answered the question, what is the gospel? You can get a much fuller picture of that by going through D101, again, found on our website. But the intended outcome of that series was to help prepare each participant to be able to share the gospel with someone in a little over a minute. And we encourage you to do that by thinking of four words, God, man, Christ, response. God, man, Christ, response. These words, God, man, Christ, response, are meant to serve as main headers when thinking about the gospel. So if you were to share the gospel with someone in about a minute, using those four words, it would go like this, God created the universe and everything in it. As the creator, he owns it all, and he gets to call the shots. He has rights over it all. Everything he created was good, and part of that good creation was man. Man was brought into God's good creation and enjoyed unhindered fellowship with God. God, as creator and owner of everything, told man how he should live. So that's God. Next we have man. Man broke fellowship with God by rebelling against God. The Bible tells us that sin and death entered the world through man and his rebellion against God. Man needed to be forgiven of his sin. That is our greatest need, the greatest need of every human, to be forgiven of your sin. But man could not play a part in that forgiveness. We needed something to intercede for us on our behalf. Enter Jesus. So we have God, man, now Christ. Christ was sent to save sinners by his sinless death, atoning life, God-giving resurrection. Jesus made it possible for man to be forgiven of his sin and brought into fellowship with God. So God, man, Christ, and lastly, response. Response tells us that when faced with the knowledge of who Jesus is and what he has done, We must decide to either accept Jesus by repenting of our sin and believing on him or reject Jesus and his offer of forgiveness. For the Christian, being tethered to Christ as our lifeline means that we are now being shaped by him and his good news. The Bible speaks in terms of those who are in Christ by being new creations, There's been a a realignment and a complete overhaul of what we believe and how we live. 
And as Christians, we should always make it a priority to identify what we are being shaped by. Because as our Redeemer, Jesus has first rights in the shaping process. Paul understood this, and the letter that we're going to be looking at this month is his correspondence to this young disciple, Timothy, who was the pastor of the church in Ephesus. What is clear about Paul's letter to Timothy is that the church at Ephesus was facing some very serious challenges. As is often the case in New Testament letters, false teachers had invaded the church, and Paul was instructing Timothy on how he should lead this church under his care and oversight. Timothy was being charged by Paul to remind the disciples of the gospel so that they would see how they were to be shaped by it. Our series, as Pastor Jeff has already said, is titled Shaped by the Gospel because as you work through 1 Timothy, you begin to notice how the gospel shapes every facet of life. The gospel shapes how and what we believe. The gospel shapes our worship. The gospel shapes our behavior. And the gospel shapes our relationships. So if you're not already there, I want you to turn, I want to invite you to turn with me to 1 Timothy in your copy of God's Word. Again, 1 Timothy. As you're turning there, I want you to ask yourself the question, why do I believe the things that I believe? Put another way, what is the driving force or forces that lead to my conclusions and convictions? What shapes what we believe? What we believe matters. More to the point, what we believe about God matters most because what we believe about God will determine how we live our lives. A.W. Tozer wrote a book on this called The Knowledge of the Holy. I encourage you to check that out at some point. In 1 Timothy, Paul's words to young Timothy point us to the conviction that the gospel shapes what we believe. There's much that could be said about Paul's teaching on gospel-shaped beliefs in this letter to Timothy, but we'll be highlighting three things. So if you're taking notes, the first point will be this, gospel-shaped beliefs proceed from faith in Christ. Gospel-shaped beliefs proceed from faith in Christ. And I get that from chapter 1, verses 12 to 20. Look at it with me, specifically verses 12 to 16. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Paul wants to remind Timothy that the gospel shaped Beliefs proceed from faith in Christ Jesus. It is Jesus who saves and enables us to think right thoughts.
thoughts about God. Did you catch that Paul mentions who he was before Jesus rescued him? There's no doubt Paul was a devoutly religious man prior to being saved. As a matter of fact, he was willing to step into the ring with anyone when it came to his religiosity. He says in Philippians 3, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the, uh, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now lay that over 1 Timothy 1.13 and following. Notice what Paul is saying. He was a whitewashed tomb bound for hell before Jesus saved him. And though he was incredibly religious and believed all the right things according to his religion, he was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. He even says that he acted ignorantly in unbelief. He was very religious, but when confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus, he realized his religion and all of his beliefs were not enough to put him in right standing before the holy God. What we believe is shaped by what we're taught. Our translations will alternate between the word teaching and the word doctrine, but either way, Paul is saying what we believe is shaped by what and how we're taught. Paul, in writing to Timothy, is calling out bad teaching, even at times calling it unsound teaching and saying it is not in accordance with what God would have us to believe. And we might think, well, who is Paul to make that declaration? Because he at one time believed wrongly. So, so who's to say that he's believing rightly now? In other words, where does Paul get his authority? But this takes us right back to what Paul is saying in verses 12 to 16. Paul's beliefs have been shaped by the gospel. The teaching he now believes comes from Jesus, who has all authority in heaven and on earth. It is Jesus who charged his disciples to teach all that he commanded. Paul believed a lot of right things before he met Jesus, but what was missing? A relationship. It's not enough just to believe rightly. Doctrine devoid of relationship is just enough to make you an educated person who is still lost in your sin. To say that gospel-shaped beliefs proceed from faith in Christ is to say that right and good thinking about God must be anchored to saving faith in Jesus Christ. We want the gospel to shape our beliefs, and this begins by knowing Jesus and knowing his commands. So when the gospel shapes our beliefs, we look at the world through the grid of what Jesus taught. Faith in Jesus leads us to love the things that Jesus loved and reject the things that Jesus rejected. Belief that is shaped by the gospel reveals that we are depending on the lifeline that is tethered to Jesus. Gospel-shaped beliefs is the doctrine joined to devotion 
to Christ Jesus. So what happens when what we believe is not shaped by the gospel? Look at verse 18 and following. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. At the beginning of chapter 1, we see Paul instructing Timothy to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Why would Paul do this? Back in verse 5, we see Paul We see why. Paul says, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul's marching orders to Timothy sound so stiff. There's something in us that can sometimes buck at this kind of directness. But we see in verse 18 and following why Paul was so direct. When our beliefs are not shaped by the gospel and ultimately not tethered by faith in Jesus, danger lies ahead. Paul knows the past state of his heart, and he, by the grace of God, has been shaped by the gospel. What he believes has been shaped by the gospel, and as Timothy is his disciple, he is shaping what Timothy believes by the gospel. Think about what is happening here. This teaching is not only for Timothy's sake. Timothy is pastoring this church, and according to Paul's Holy Spirit-driven assessment, Paul is showing Timothy how he needs to use the gospel to shape the beliefs of people under his care. All of this begins with a soul that has been redeemed by Jesus. So gospel-shaped beliefs, they proceed from faith in Christ. The second thing that we notice about gospel-shaped beliefs is that they promote God's good creation. So if you're taking notes, gospel-shaped beliefs promote God's good creation. We see this in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 to 5. Look at these verses with me. Now, the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. While we can't be exactly sure of what was being taught, what is clear from these verses is that there was dangerously false teaching in the church at Ephesus. Verse 3, Paul reveals that some of what false teaching centered around was marriage and food. And what would become known as Gnosticism was probably the root of Paul's concern. 
Gnosticism is a, a system of teaching that says that spiritual is good and matter or physical is bad. So in terms of the life of a religious person whose beliefs were influenced by Gnosticism, the soul was good and the body was bad. The Gnostics taught that the most virtuous people were those who rejected normal desires for what God has created. In this case, enjoying the institution of marriage and food. We might hear what the Gnostics were teaching and think, well, what can it hurt for someone to remain celibate and to only eat what is necessary for survival? After all, even Paul calls celibacy a gift in 1 Corinthians. So what's the big deal? The beliefs that were at the root of this teaching weren't being shaped by the gospel. Paul calls the the false teachers liars whose consciences are seared. He likens the false teaching against God's good creation to that of the teaching of demons and deceitful spirits. In our vernacular, Paul would have been called a bigot. Those who say things today, like Paul was saying to Timothy, are called dangerous and are labeled as using hate speech. But was Paul being hateful? This may shock you, but I would suggest that not only was Paul not being hateful, he was actually being loving. Remember back to chapter 1 where he said, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We live in an age where it's okay to reject the idea that there is absolute truth. Until recently, our society has been comfortable saying what you believe is your truth and what I believe is my truth. But we are beginning to see how gospel-shaped beliefs promoting God's good creation are no longer being tolerated. As followers of Christ, whose beliefs are shaped by the gospel, we must promote God's good creation. While Gnostic teaching is still very much alive and active today, We realize that's not the only driver behind teaching and beliefs that do not promote God's good creation. The pendulum has swung, and where the false teachers in Ephesus were saying, to be spiritual, you must adhere to the rules, today what we hear is that you can be spiritual, and there are no rules. The false teachers in Ephesus were wanting to ignore God's good creation, and the false teachers today are co-opting God's good creation creation. How are we seeing this distortion of God's good creation today? One of the most visible distortions is in the arena of gender and sexuality. It is now a daily occurrence to hear things about gender and sexuality that are squarely at odds with God's word. We're being asked and sometimes even forced to accept and support things in our culture that they call good, but God calls sin. Transgenderism, the attempts to normalize pornography, homosexuality, the sex trade, fornication, are among the things opposed to God's good creation. In promoting God's good creation, gospel-shaped beliefs may be called unloving. 
But like Paul and Timothy, out of an abundance of love, we must reject the so-called wisdom of this world that is out of step with God's good creation. How do we do this? That will certainly depend on the issue that we're addressing, but a starting place would be to consider how Ken and Floyd Smith did it. In her book, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, Rosaria Butterfield recounts how she, as a militant lesbian, was converted to faith and saved by Jesus through the loving but uncompromising gospel-centered hospitality of Ken and Floyd Smith. It's a beautiful story of God calling someone out of their sin to follow Jesus and now promote God's good creation. I'll link to that book in the notes for the sermon you'll get tomorrow in the email. I would encourage you to read it. Because as our society moves more and more toward this sexual revolution, and we are called on more and more to accept and endorse what God calls wicked, we're going to need to know as Christians how to promote God's good creation. And one way that we do it is speaking truth in love, being unwavering in our commitment to the gospel, caring for those around us, showing hospitality, welcoming people into our homes, loving them, but again, not compromising on God's truth. As followers of Jesus, whose gospel-centered and shaped beliefs promote God's good creation, like Ken and Floyd Smith, again, we must speak truth in love. Gospel-shaped beliefs proceed from faith in Christ They promote God's good creation. And lastly, gospel-shaped beliefs profess godly knowledge. Our final point again is that gospel-shaped beliefs profess godly knowledge. We see this at the end of the letter in chapter 6. Look at verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, for by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Grace be with you. In saying to Timothy that he should avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge, Paul obviously intended for Timothy to pursue godly knowledge. We see this in chapter 6, beginning in the second half of verse 2. Teach and urge these things. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. Not only was Timothy to take a defensive posture in guarding the good deposit and avoiding what amounted to false knowledge, He was to take an offensive posture by teaching and urging the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says there is teaching that accords with godliness, and by professing that knowledge, the follower of Jesus will not swerve from the faith. Godly knowledge tells us, as Paul told Timothy, that we should pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. Paul was specifically drawing Timothy's attention here in chapter 6 to the false teachers who were motivated by greed. 
Paul probably had a radar for these guys because he at one time was just like them. They had all the right answers. They claimed to be godly. And if pressed, probably would have even said that they had good intentions. But just as Paul said in chapter 1, that he had at one time acted ignorantly in unbelief, he wanted Timothy to hear directly from him that these false teachers, especially those who were greedy in chapter 6, they were to be marked and rejected because of their false knowledge. So why do gospel-shaped beliefs profess godly knowledge? Because a life shaped by the good news of Jesus will bear the marks of his or her Savior. In chapter 4, Paul tells Timothy, train yourself for godliness. He goes on to say, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Professing godly knowledge leads to pursuing godliness. How we live begins by our beliefs and what we profess. If professing false knowledge leads to someone swerving from the faith, professing godly knowledge will lead someone to pursuing godliness, which again holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. There is so much practical application that could be made here. But foundationally, how we live begins with what we believe and profess. In a couple of weeks when we talk about how the gospel shapes our behavior, we will certainly address some of these things. But for now, it's enough to know that, again, gospel-shaped beliefs will lead to how we live accordingly. Are your beliefs shaped by the gospel? Do your beliefs proceed from faith in Christ? Are your beliefs promoting God's good creation? Are your beliefs leading you to profess godly knowledge so that you can pursue godliness? Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Thank you so much for this word to Timothy from Paul. Thank you for the correction that it has for all of us. Thank you for the encouragement that it has for those who are tethered to Christ by faith. Father, as we prepare our hearts for your table. I pray that we would be reminded of why it is that Christ came. Why it is that he lived a sinless life and died a death that made atonement for our sin. And in a hope-giving way, rose from the dead, showing that death has no claim on him. Father, we give you thanks for Jesus and what he has done. And as we consider over the next few weeks of how the gospel shapes us, Father, I pray that we be ever mindful of 
the activity of the Holy Spirit that is at work in this church, in the lives of the people of this church. Father, for those here this morning who have never placed their faith in Christ alone, repenting of their sin, I pray that today would be the day. I pray that having heard your word, they would see the alternative to Christ, the alternative preached by false teachers that leans on things other than the precious life, death, and resurrection of our Savior. If anyone is here today, Father, that is in that category, I pray that today would be the day that they bow their knee to Christ, repent of their sin, and believe on him for their salvation. We give you thanks for this day. It's in Jesus' name we pray, by the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen.